Welcome to the Perfume Room. I am currently experiencing a weird phenomenon, and I need to know if this has happened to any of you. So Twisted Lily, and shout out Twisted Lily, thank you so much for this, has been generously sending me lots of samples of new releases and fragrances I haven't yet tried. And one of the perfumes in that package was none other than Zerjoff Casamirati Dama Bianca. I took one look at the notes and I was like, this is going to be a home run for me. This is totally my kind of scent. It's got notes of violet and iris and lilac and malt and vanilla and ambreth seed and kumquat and musk and lime. Oh my. But here's where it got weird. Okay. So upon spraying it, I had a very strong gut reaction. I sprayed it and immediately I was like, this is me in a perfume. This is absolutely beautiful. And to give you a reference point of what it was that I was smelling, it kind of felt like the in-between of the candle Mise en Cire at Always Stays Alps, which you know I love and I describe as a sort of like pillowy, floofy cloud with like heliotrope and iris and violet. And then maybe something like Dead Cool Blondo 3, which is more of like the violet raspberry saffron. It's like makeup-y and almondy, and I was loving it. Anyway, something changed, but it wasn't in the smell. It was just in my opinion. It was like my brain and my nose were not communicating. 10 minutes in, I was not enjoying it at all. And to be clear, I've tried many scents where like the fragrance evolves in a way that I don't like, or I like it on blotter, but not on my skin, or I like it on somebody else, but not on me. This was not that. This fragrance didn't change. Only my opinion of it did. I disliked it for the same reason that 10 minutes earlier I had been obsessed with it, which is weird because like I said, I was obsessed with it. Does this ever happen to you guys? If so... Why do you think that is? Perhaps there's a more scientific explanation of sorts for this, which leads to more important things like today's guest and the topic of our episode. This one has been a long time coming. Today, get excited. It is the pheromone episode. Where to begin? I have wanted to do this episode for so long because there has been such an uptick in pheromone products and content in fragrances marketed as aphrodisiacs and love potions, etc. And as a consumer, you gotta wonder, is this real? And products on the market have run the gamut from actual oils marketed as pheromones with active ingredients listed like copulin, oxytocin, and androstenone to internet trends like the hot girl vabbing summer of 2022, where today, if I open my TikTok right now, I know I'm going to get served at least three videos with titles like five cents that will get you bent like a lawn chair, which on a side note, let's just reevaluate that trend for a second. Bent like a lawn chair? Um, I am good on that. Thank you. If you want to reach me, just tell me I will be gently spread out like a beach towel. Much more ginger, much more my speed. Anyway, I digress. Whether you swear by pheromones, you find them predatory, fake, gimmicky, whatever, we all wonder, is there any scientific evidence, any truth to support the idea that a fragrance and a fragrance alone could attract, with or without consent, another human being? And I finally found the right guest to have this conversation with. Today we are joined by evolutionary biologist and award-winning author, Dr. Tristram Wyatt. Dr. Wyatt is a senior research fellow in the Department of Zoology at the University of Oxford and an emeritus fellow of Kellogg College, Oxford. His focus is in animal behavior and pheromones, and on this subject, he's given a TEDx talk and authored a textbook 
called Pheromones and Animal Behavior, which in 2014 won the Royal Society of Biology's award for best postgraduate textbook. Needless to say, if there is anyone I trust to take us through the legitimacy of pheromones, it is Dr. Wyatt. We chat about everything from the history of animal pheromones to the spikes in conversation of human pheromones within the last century, and of course, we discuss their legitimacy. We talk about how and why certain studies are widely circulated as evidence when in fact, they might not be. And we also chat about the genetic reason why you might love your partner's natural scent and not somebody else's. And of course, we get into why animalics in perfumery are so damn appealing. Let's get into it. Here is Dr. Wyatt. I'm so happy to speak with you. You know, one of the things that comes up in this podcast is the idea of pheromones and aphrodisiacs and scent. And I thought, what better than to have a true pheromone and scent expert on the podcast? Before we get into it, I would love to just know a little bit more about your background and how you got into this field. So my background is in animal behavior. And for most of my career, I studied insect behavior and particularly insect pheromones. So the chemical Mm. signals, the smells they use for communication. But I was invited by Cambridge University Press to write a book about pheromones and animal behavior across the animal kingdom, integrating what's been found in all kinds of animals, including humans. And that's now an award-winning graduate level textbook. And it's given me the reason to go deeply into how pheromones are used by animals of every kind. So within the the category of animals, do humans use pheromones? And and what are pheromones? So we'll talk in detail about human pheromones, but the answer so far is that there's no good evidence that would stand up. But across the animal kingdom, pheromones are used extremely widely. Almost any animal you can think of is likely to use a pheromone. So pheromones are these chemical signals that animals use for communication. The first ones that were identified were female sex pheromones in moths Mm -hmm. that were used by the female to attract the male. And very rapidly, these were found in moth species uh, of many pest moths. And that was one of the driving forces for the early research. Mm -hmm. But before long, uh, pheromones were found in fish. Uh, mammals such as mice. And it's not just sex. So in rabbits, the female rabbit, the mother, produces a pheromone in her milk, which allows the rabbit pups to find the nipple and latch on. And they have to do that really quickly in the dark, because she will feed her brood uh, for just five minutes a day. So the pheromone is what allows those rabbit pups to find the nipple and get that um, badly needed milk. Mm. It's so fascinating. And I I think what's so interesting about it is there's such a marketing ploy right now in the fragrance world of how that fragrance is worn essentially to attract another. And I think there are certain brands that have done that by marketing pheromones. And then there are others that have done that by just marketing their sense as sort of attractants. Is there any merit scientifically, if not via pheromones, of just fragrance as an attractant to humans? I think fragrance uh, definitely plays a part in attraction, but something you realise very quickly, as you'll have um, noted in other podcasts, I'm sure, is the way that uh, fragrances follow fashion. So Mm -hmm. the fragrances, the perfumes that your grandmother might have worn, 
are not the same ones that um, today's women are wearing. Right. And that suggests it's it's more a cultural thing than a biological thing. And mm. you can make a similar observation as you go around the world that different uh, cultures uh, value different uh, smells as ones that um, are thought to be attractive. Now, there may be some that are universally thought to be attractive, but that, again, is likely to be culture. And one of the interesting things now, of course, is that so much of our culture has gone global, particularly from a Western perspective. I'm wondering down to the biological level, certain people sometimes will jive with someone based on their smell or the the taste of their, their body odor, the taste of their saliva. Is there a scientific reason behind that? Well, there could be. Uh, and there are, I suppose, two um, different routes for the explanation. One is that each of us has a different um, sense of smell. So mm. you know about color blindness. So there's a little bit of variation in the uh, color receptors in our eyes, mm -hmm. uh, particularly noticeable in men. Uh, we often have uh, red color blindness, for example. Mm. Well, that's just with three genes. There are 400 or so genes uh, controlling what we can smell in our nose, the receptors for different molecules. And so you could have a situation where the smell given off by one person is attractive to somebody else simply because they have a slightly different sense of smell to somebody else. So in other mm -hmm. words, different people would disagree about who is most attractive because they're not actually smelling the world in the same way. And you get the same effect if they were smelling different wines or, or different fruits. And it's mm -hmm. why some people um, like the taste stroke smell of cilantro. And mm -hmm. there's about 10% of the world's population all around the world that actually finds that it reminds them of soap, uh, not something tasty. So there could be a similar kind of thing happening when we're attracted or not attracted to somebody um, when you're in close contact and you're tasting and nibbling. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that's certainly something I've noticed myself. Mm -hmm. That's one side. There is another side which comes up again and is written about a lot in the context of T-shirts. And you've probably had T-shirt sniffing in other programs. So basically the story behind this is the idea that there is somebody who is your best genetic match um, and that the way you can detect that is by what they smell of. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to some work back in the 70s on mice and these mice in New York in a lab preferred mice that were genetically different and it was the smell and it was tracked down to genes in the immune system. Mm. Now, fast forward a few years, a Swiss scientist had the great idea, now that it was possible to do genotyping for the immune system that was used for matching people for organ donation, why didn't you repeat that mouse experiment with students? And what he found, it seemed, was that women sniffing the t-shirts that had been worn by men that were genetically more different in the immune system were more attractive. That is, unless those women were on the pill, in which case they chose men that were closer to them genetically in the immune system genes. Hmm. And it made a fantastic story. And it could explain Western levels of divorce because you'd fall in love when the woman was on the pill. Mm -hmm. And then having married, 
uh, you might want to start a family, uh, she would come off the pill and suddenly discover this nasty smelling guy um, sharing her life. Wow. But, but you could hear the buck coming. Yes. It's actually been very hard to replicate those initial studies. So it's a lovely story, mm-hmm. but it may not be true. And one clue to that, of course, is that we fall in love for all sorts of reasons. It's not just about mm-hmm. what somebody smells like. It's about mm-hmm. whether they make you laugh, um, the chance that you might meet. And so if you look into the real world and do huge genotyping studies and look at who is married to who, and what you might predict is that if this was a really important element of how we choose our partners, that there ought to be traces of that in who we choose to marry. Basically, is not clear cut. One or two studies have said, yes, that's happening, that people are more different than you'd expect by chance. Other studies have said, no, it's just random. So Mm. it's a great story and it comes up often. And it was the storyline, I think, in a Netflix series called The One, where people were sending off swabs from their cheeks Mm -hmm. and they're discovering the person they'd chosen. Um, was not the real one or not the best I, one. You know what? I do. I remember. I think I saw a few episodes of that show and it was all DNA driven, right? That's right. And it was a, yeah. a fantastic story. And there have been a couple of startups offering that service. So um, mm-hmm. you could either send in your T-shirt, mm-hmm. having worn it, okay. be sent out to people to sniff. Um, mm-hmm. Or indeed, there were some uh, companies that were offering that DNA kind of testing. But sadly, it's not proven. But it's a lovely mm-hmm. idea. Right. I mean, it would put a scientific evidence behind the idea of opposites attract if it were if it were true. It fits in very well with some of our ideas and all driven by smell, perhaps. I'm very curious about pheromones in humans because we sort of touched on pheromones in animals. But I don't know if you've seen this sort of rage in marketing on TikTok, on the Internet of people selling pheromones as the way to get the ultimate you know, to attract anyone that you desire. Is there merit to this? Sadly, no. And what's fascinating is the way that this idea has been around for a long time. And I can remember back in the 80s, in-flight magazines that had adverts on paper. So what's changed Mm -hmm. is just the way that the marketing goes. So now it's Mm -hmm. on TikTok, but then it was on on paper in magazines. Right. So, uh, it's a very attractive idea and people are always looking to find um, somebody to, to have sex with. It's a, a very strong human urge. So if you're offered something in the marketing that suggests you can increase your chances, increase your success, then mm-hmm. of course it's going to be attractive. And it's a very powerful marketing tool. Yes. I mean, maybe it's a little bit too of like a placebo effect. Indeed. So I, I think actually that's probably the the real basis of it, that mm-hmm. customers having spent $50 uh, on this additive to their own perfume or a perfume off the shelf that claims to have these molecules mm-hmm. um, inside are going to go out to the bar or to the party with greater confidence. Right. And who knows, they might well, but only from a placebo effect, having right. put it on, uh, right meet somebody they might not have met otherwise. And there's nothing right. wrong with that. But there's no science from the pheromone. What I could talk about is the different waves of these. If we go back in time to the 1970s, 
there was a moment in 1971 when the doctor, Alex Comfort, uh, who wrote the book Joy of Sex, wrote very enthusiastically in a scientific journal that the age of human pheromones was coming. And what had stimulated his enthusiasm was some work on rhesus monkeys that was coming out of America that suggested that female rhesus monkeys were producing a pheromone that was attractive to males. Mm. Sadly, that research couldn't be replicated, but it was an indication of the enthusiasm from both scientists and the general public. At about the same time, people started to notice that some molecules that were claimed to be pheromones in pigs were also found in small quantities in human armpits. And it seemed initially that there was more in male armpits than female armpits. And so because it was a pheromone in pigs, people jumped to the idea that it was a pheromone in humans. Although the idea that something is a pheromone in one species doesn't necessarily mean it is more likely to be a pheromone in another. Mm -hmm. What really kicked it off was this pheromone is in, in pigs is important to farmers and you can buy it in a spray can. So what you had was a whole series of very small, poorly designed experiments where a psychologist would spray the underside of a chair in a dentist's waiting room or something similar and see which chair women coming into the waiting room would sit in. Hmm. And some small experiments suggested that women were sitting down more on the chair that had the pig pheromone spread under it. But those experiments have been dissected by Dick Doty and uh, others. Uh, He's at um, Pennsylvania University. Uh, And basically, the statistics just don't hold up. Mm. And then it was found that actually women produced just as much of these molecules, the pig pheromone, as men. And so really there was no difference uh, between the amounts produced by the sexes. And that story pretty well disappeared, although it comes up sometimes around Valentine's Day in some of the Mm -hmm. tabloid papers. The next round uh, was, and it comes to the present day, was two enterprising professors in 1991 patented two molecules. And these were androstadienone and estratetrienol, which respectively mm. were the what they claimed to be the male pheromone and the female pheromone in humans. And these are the molecules that are marketed in most of the perfumes you can buy. Mm-hmm. The problem is they never published any strong evidence that these had anything to do with pheromones. Now, what had been done with the moths is very detailed work to show that these were produced by female moths in the right sort of quantities. uh, And then when synthesized in very careful experiments, demonstrated to have the same effect as the natural female produced molecules. So it's a particular process for establishing that a molecule is a pheromone. It takes a lot of work, but at the end of that, you can conclude that there really is a pheromone. None of that was done for these two molecules. We're not even sure how they found them. One of the researchers uh, had a background in uh, mending broken uh, arms. And there's a suggestion that the molecule might have been found in dead skin cells on the inside of plaster casts, but we don't know. It's very romantic. um, mm, Yes. So (laughs) basically, 
these molecules appeared, they were promoted at a conference, their corporation that they'd set up, the Erox Corporation, uh, sponsored in Paris, where better to launch a human pheromone among um, the premier place for fragrance. But it wasn't followed up by any proper research. And it mm. might have disappeared until 2000, when a well-respected researcher tried the molecules in some such psychological experiments, but for no other reason that they had been claimed to be putative pheromones. And in that paper, they were very cautious and said, okay, well, they might not be pheromones, but let's try them anyway. Mm -hmm. And it seemed as if there was some small effect on mood and possibly relaxation, possibly a little bit on attraction. But what this has spawned, because that researcher was very influential, and because by now you could buy these molecules in the post, psychologists who wanted to do something sexy would just send off these molecules and then do small experiments. So we have about five experiments a year published in the scientific literature by well-established researchers, well-meaning researchers, but actually they're based on molecules for which there is no evidence. And this set me thinking, how could you have 60 papers all finding something exciting? Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to discover the reproducibility crisis in psychology. So although these experiments are in smell, they're actually human psychology. And what's been found in human psychology um, particularly since about 2010, is that even very well-established things in the textbooks, in the psychology textbooks, can't be replicated. So in other words, there's a phenomenon that's been described that really isn't there, that it mm. was in the imagination of the researcher who are desperate to publish exciting new results. And what you have then is, in the case of human pheromones, 60 or more studies that are variations on a theme. They don't replicate the previous experiment. They always have to do something new. They mm -hmm. always find something exciting, but actually there's nothing there at the beginning of it all, which is these molecules are not human pheromones. So where that leaves us is, I think, a strong placebo effect, um, as you suggested, but we've got a long way before we find human pheromones. And how we might do that is another story. So I've seen too, I mean, I, you were mentioning, uh, and I might misquote, and what did you say, Andrustin, what was and the name of them? Dainone and, and estratetrienol. Okay. I've seen in other pheromone products that the hero ingredients are oxytocin and copulin. And I know that those are... Um, Very different. You, okay. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. So, and they're quite different stories. Okay. So um, copulins... <laughs> are what was proposed back in that 1970 uh, paper on uh, rhesus monkeys. So those mm. are the copulins. So okay. those were fatty acids. And yes, they've had a bit of a revival, but again, no evidence. Mm -hmm. um, so it's um, evidence-free. The oxytocin story is different. And that's the, the kind of love hormone um, right. idea. And it's something that's been studied a lot in uh, voles. So there's little furry uh, mouse-like animals. Okay. And the suggestion there 
is it's the hormone that's responsible for bonding. So mm -hmm. there's a big rush of oxytocin that's released when animals bond. And that then lays memories for the smell and the other attributes of your partner. So the idea comes from these small furry uh, mammals and it's marketed as a spray possibly to put in your nose. But there is a huge question mark about whether enough oxytocin would pass across your uh, mucosal membranes in your nose into the brain to actually have any effect whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So again, it's one of those stories. It sounds very sciencey, um, oxytocin, um, mm -hmm. copulin, that they have great yes. names. And one of, right. the, one of the amazing things actually about the, the word pheromone is that it was invented. It's a, a newly created word in 1959, uh, which had to be coined because a neighbouring lab was about to publish the first chemical identification of a pheromone, that silk moth uh, female sex pheromone. And so two scientists thought, well, we need a new word to describe this phenomenon. And they came up with this word pheromone. And if you look in the literature, it immediately took off. And after that word had been proposed, it just sounded right. And ever since we thought of it as pheromone, and very quickly, it became associated with something sexy. Hello, listeners. It is I, and today I am coming at you with a small ask, which is to please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so already. Your reviews help the podcast grow, gain credibility, and more importantly, reach new listeners. Share it with a friend, post about it, make it the subject of a juicy diary entry, and then read that entry aloud at your local open mic. Anything you can do to help spread the word is so appreciated. And I do want you to know that your reviews are not in vain. Here's where they go. First, each review is carefully screenshotted. Then it is reviewed and shared in a text correspondence with my mother. There, they are read, celebrated, printed, and framed. They are then mailed out to family and friends in lieu of traditional holiday cards. So thank you. Let's get back to Dr. Wyatt. Well, another thing that I think about often specifically related to perfume, and you were talking too about how what we like is different across cultures, across the world, but this idea of sort of animalic and fecal sense is something um, that is very popular in perfume. And so I feel that even though people want to act like the smell of feces or sweat is not attractive or is off-putting. There are indolic floral notes that are made to be sexy or cumin is added to add a sweaty note to make it sexier. Or, you know, we use hyracium or ambergris or deer musk or all these things that are just very animalic. And I'm curious if there's any, I guess, science behind why we like these sort of filthy scents. There isn't a lot, uh, but you're right that they are attractive. But there is um, a real dependence on concentration. So mm -hmm. a little goes a long way. And if you add too much, it then becomes completely repellent. So mm -hmm. it's about getting the right amount. And it is a whole fascinating area. Um, perfumers, of course, have come to this um, by rule of thumb and tradition and finding what they're customers like. But the scientific basis of that really is something that we ought to study more. Now, mm -hmm. 
it does touch into this whole idea about what we find sexy. And there are big taboos about liking smells. Now, Napoleon uh, came out uh, famously in his letter to Josephine, um, Empress Josephine, saying, ne se lave pas, j'arrive, don't wash, um, I'm coming soon. So <laughs> there have been lots of enthusiasts and there are certainly lots of enthusiasts now, but it is the kind of thing that people don't talk about. And there's this whole area about um, oral sex. Um, and basically when you're getting down and dirty, there's a lot of smell around, however mm-hmm. carefully somebody's washed. Now, what we do know is that some of the ideas about not having too much of a good thing go back a long way. Mm-hmm. And the Roman poet Catullus or Catullus uh, writes to a friend that um, the reason he can't um, get a partner is because his armpits smell of goat. <laughs> and uh, there are a couple of molecules that actually really do smell of um, male goats in the breeding season that you find in human armpits um, if you don't mm. wash them. Okay. Uh, and they're even called hercine. Um, mm. So it's all about how much. Mm-hmm. That being said, some people really do like it. And you will find people asking their partner um, not to wash before sex uh, because mm-hmm. they do find it something sexy and a real turn on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a reminder that um, humans are animals. Right. Now, that leads me to, would we expect humans to have pheromones? So it's one thing to say that none have been found. And I think that is actually our problem, that none have been seriously searched for. But would we expect humans to have pheromones in the first place? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, We're mammals. And the thing about mammals is that they are very smelly. Uh, And often they will have um, patches of skin that uh, are almost designed in evolutionary terms to have lots of bacteria that will break down the secretions that the animal secretes in those special places. Now, it could be that armpits are one Mm -hmm. of those areas in humans. And so if we're like other mammals, it's highly likely, since other mammals do have pheromones, that we might have them ourselves. And there are some clues that something is going on uh, if we look at the way that the smells that humans produce change as we go from childhood to adulthood through puberty. And children do smell very different from adults. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that is all sorts of gland cells that uh, are not secreting uh, before puberty with the hormonal Mm -hmm. changes of that stage start to secrete all sorts of things. And that's about the same time that the hair starts to grow in our armpits and our groins. Mm -hmm. So on simple grounds of likelihood, if we were any other kind of mammal and we saw those changes occurring around sexual maturity, we mm-hmm. might think perhaps some of those smells have something to do with sexual attraction. Mm-hmm. So on those grounds, and that we're basically a mammal, I would expect there could be. The problem is that it's not been an area that's properly researched. And it's one mm-hmm. of the problems of the study of smell in general in humans. So we know a lot more about vision and hearing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that held the study of smell back 
is that we didn't know how it worked until the 1990s. And Linda Buck and Richard Axel uh, got their Nobel Prize for that 1991 work in 2004. And for a Nobel Prize in the senses, that's incredibly late. It's perhaps 30 years or so after the Nobel Prizes for how vision and how hearing work. And the other thing that makes studying smell really hard is if you think of studying sight or hearing, you can show things on a computer screen, you can play things back through a loudspeaker, you can play a recording, you can generate computer-generated sounds Mm -hmm. for hearing. But for smell, you need a chemist to exactly reproduce the molecules. Because one thing we do know about the sense of smell is it is incredibly sensitive. Mm -hmm. And you just get a, a single double bond wrong in a molecule or the position of a hydrogen And we will recognize that as a different smell. So Mm. trying to study the sense of smell is super hard. And I think the combination of then being no playback, not understanding exactly how smell worked until relatively recently. Right. And it's also been the kind of Cinderella of the senses. So the amount of NIH money that goes towards smell research is much smaller than that going to vision and hearing. So we've got a long way to go in doing those kinds of studies seriously. Have you seen an increase in funding and support since COVID occurred and so many people have, you know, had anosmia and parosmia? That's what we're hoping. Um, I don't know how many rounds of funding have been, but Mm -hmm. certainly that is uh, the kind of thing which will be making the Monal Institute, for example, in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. um, hopeful about ramping up its research. And it certainly Mm -hmm. is needed. And I think what the COVID epidemic um, showed us is the reality of how important the sense of smell is to all of us. Mm -hmm. And it was only when uh, people had anosmia, that is losing their sense of smell, or had these bad smells in terms of perception, the parosmias, when smell came back, um, that made them realise, made us all realise, that it's a vital sense. Going back to what you were saying about that there probably are human pheromones, they just haven't been particularly, they haven't been discovered yet. Would you hypothesize that pheromones are closer to unscented versus, I guess what I think about is obviously the idea of pheromones is attracting someone or attracting something based on a smell. But when you buy these pheromone products that are on the market, they're often scented with these like synthetic fruity notes and it just feels like it's so scented. Do you think it would be something that would be detectable? Some of the question goes back to some of the early ideas about pheromones. Mm -hmm. So there was an idea in the 1990s based on some work on mice, uh, but it was actually a mistake. And the idea, because mice have a second nose and Mm -hmm. lots of pheromones are detected by that second nose in mice, the vermiro-nasal organ or Jacobson's organ. There was an idea briefly among molecular biologists that it would be, pheromones would be detected by the VNO, the vermiro-nasal organ, and would bypass the conscious brain. So that was the idea. It would tap into a, a a brainstem part of the brain. And this was extrapolated to humans. So those 1991 um, 
entrepreneurial scientists who claimed they had found pheromones also claimed that they'd found a vimeronasal organ in humans because at the time they had to find one uh, to fit mm -hmm. in with the mouse work which was mistaken but to market it they had to say that humans had a vimeronasal organ and the idea of the vimeronasal organ was that if it was detected by that it would go to brainstem rather than high conscious levels of the brain mm -hmm. now it turns out that although we have a vermiranasal organ, uh, the beginnings of one in the embryo, by the time we're born, and certainly by the time we're an adult, um, it's not functioning. We don't have a vermiranasal organ in humans. Mm. So the whole idea, I'm afraid, was nonsense. But that's part of the reason why it was pushed that it would be something unconscious. Now, why do these solutions marketed as pheromones have these um, fruity notes. I think it may be that it would just seem rather strange to us if we got something in the post and it didn't smell of anything, mm -hmm. but it um, claimed to be something very potent. So mm -hmm. I think that's partly to reassure us that there's something in the bottle, quite right. apart from the liquid. But right. I don't think there's any science behind it. It's so interesting. And have you seen this internet trend in addition to what we were just talking about of vabbing? Because that was a big story over the summer. Happy yes. to explain it if not. Okay. What are, what are your thoughts on, on vabbing? Is there any legitimacy? And does it go back to the sort of humans being animals and liking animal smells? Yes. Um, so in some ways it could have a long history in folklore. So there are stories of um, Transylvanian um, farm boys um, taking the sweat from under their arms at dances and um, putting it on their forehead and wrapping the mm. handkerchief around their neck um, when they're dancing with girls. So that goes back a long way. Now, this mm. is the, the female equivalent. Um, mm -hmm. Putting two fingers um, down to your vulva and taking the secretion and dabbing it behind your ears. So it's a great idea. Um, I think there could be a strong placebo effect. and um, Again, uh, it's natural. Um, we smell nice. Um, and so long as there's not an infection, it should be good. So why not? Um, particularly if it gives you confidence. But so far as any experiments being done on it, um, I don't think anybody's done the double blind experiments that would be needed. Uh, and it would be quite fun to get that through the ethics committee. <laughs> A long way to go there. Okay, so I'm curious. Since you've done so much, your your whole life is rooted in the study of smells. What are you wearing in your personal life? Do you wear any fragrances? Um, not at all. I'm actually really disappointing. So <laughs> my, my only concession um, is uh, shaving armpits, uh, which I started doing after I read a, a 1950s um, study in the U.S. Army um, where poor people had to sniff the armpits of other recruits and found that the shaved armpits um, didn't smell for a much longer time. So they were free of smell for a much longer time than the ones that were left natural. And the reason for that uh, is that when our sweat is secreted, um, the molecules that give rise to the smells are odorless. And it's only when they're broken down by the bacteria in our armpits uh, that they start to smell the characteristic smells that we associate with armpits, uh, certainly in in, uh, in the West. And the bacteria live on the hair. So if you take away the rainforest, 
um, you get rid of all the smell for a much longer time. So um, that's my small concession. But no, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a disappointment on the small world, but I enjoy it on other people. So you enjoy it on other people. I feel like that's a good segue into the final question, which is, are there any, whether it's an actual fragrance that exists in this world or just a raw material, a note, anything that you would feel comfortable in your personal or professional life saying is an aphrodisiac or an attractant of some sort? At present, no. And that's a huge disappointment because it would be so nice to be able to say, these are the molecules, these are the fragrances, um, either when you found somebody um, as an aphrodisiac or to attract somebody to find that person. But at the moment, no. Sadly, we've got a long way to go. Okay. This is, you heard it first, everyone. Well, Dr. Wyatt, it has been so incredible to talk with you. We do have a final game that we play that's a rapid-fire scent association. Would you like to play the game? I'll have a go. Okay. The game is called What's That Smell? Mmm, what's that smell? I will throw out abstract concepts, places, whatever, and you just tell me the first smell that comes to mind, and no answer is incorrect. So, let's play What's That Smell? Dr. Wyatt, what is the smell of London? Chips. French fries. What is the smell of uh, your childhood home? Pine. What is the smell of love? Warm. What is the smell of innocence? Soap. What is the smell of evil? Skittles. So poop. Poop, okay. What is the smell of the color blue? Verdigris. Mm, okay. And the final question, though you sort of answered this, what is the smell of Dr. Tristram Wyatt? Sweet. Sweet. I love it. Dr. White, it's been such an honor to speak with you. Thank you so very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Perfumer was edited by Wyatt Peak. Music is by Max Vernon and illustrations are by Israel Rodriguez. 